Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. Hunting boots are a critical component of any successful hunt. Whether walking a short distance to your blind or trudging miles through rugged terrain, your feet are carrying the load. Without the right boots, you could give up early and lose out on that trophy just over the ridge. At Midway USA, we make selecting boots for your next hunt easier. With just a few clicks of a mouse, you can decide on what's important, like waterproofing, insulation, size, width, and savings. For just about everything for shooting, hunting, and the outdoors, check out MidwayUSA.com. Welcome to Colorado Hunting Hub. This podcast is designed to talk about everything hunting in Colorado. Whether you're a new hunter, old timer, or something else, Colorado Hunting Hub will have something for you. I'm your host, Clint Whitley, and let's get started. Hey everyone, thanks for tuning in to Colorado Hunting Hub. We've got a cool series for you in this uh, next four episodes, and they are going to be region-specific. So we're going to start with the Northwest region and speak with some different CPW representatives to chat with us about those regions and a little bit about the herd outlook, the herd health, mainly around deer, elk, and ended up being a little antelope in there as well. And then chatted with them about license allocations, a little bit of that, uh, and then uh, how the wildlife is managed in each region. And I had the same question set up for all four interviews, but each one ended up being a little different. And even though I do not hunt in three of the units or regions, I should say, uh, I got something out of each one. So even though you may only hunt in the Northwest, I would consider checking out the Southwest, Southeast, and the Northeast region audio. So that's coming up. We've got a couple of biologists on the front range. And then on the Western slope, we've got the, uh, you'll have to listen to their titles, but uh, uh, Western, Northwest region, public they deal with the public and so kind of the the publication so sorry randy and joe got messed up your your titles but uh they're in the in the main portion of the podcast so so uh, great guys there and then uh, julie in the southeast uh, awesome there and when i'm recording this i hadn't quite done the northeast one yet either so some good stuff in all of these and we're gonna pump them out all four at a time so i hope you enjoy and get something region specific or get motivated to try out something new maybe like the over-the-counter white-tail deer tags in the southeast that was something new and kind of cool so check that out but before we get to that we've got some giveaways that we're doing kind of crazy i've got 99 people registered for the onyx membership giveaway that i'm giving away 12 of them over the next well uh, 
12, 11 months. I've emailed six people and redrawn the uh, May winner over and over. And nobody replies. So check your email. I'm giving, trying to give these away and I can't. So hopefully that doesn't happen with the Vortex Binos. I posted on my Instagram that I pulled them out of the box. Sorry about that, but I had to. And I was quite impressed. I mean, I've got some, uh, I've got a bigger set of binos that I have, the Vortex Razors, and then I have some Mavens, but quite impressed with these 10x42s, and they'd be really nice to have a little smaller pair the, for, for shed hunting or hunting period or something a little lighter weight for backcountry. So they're they're a pretty sweet little set of binoculars. Only $279.99 is what the MSRP is on those. Uh, and I've only got 183 people registered. So I'd say that's not horrible odds. And uh, then we also have the XL Mountain Gear backpack. There's only 130 people registered for that thing. So we're not talking about like one in a thousand right now. Your odds are far better than many, many giveaways. Uh, and this pack is that you could potentially win is valued at 600 to 680 bucks. It all depends on which one you pick. They're going to fit it right to you. And I tell you what, this is a pack you need to get. I have no, this pack is not in my possession. So uh, it's going to go right, come right from XO. So you get get that good fit. So I wish, hope, hope maybe one of my hunting buddies wins it. So uh, <laughs> I know they're outfitted. So other things we got going on. Uh, appreciate I Hunt Colorado's Facebook page. If you haven't been over there, uh, make sure you like, ask to be a member of that group. Uh, great group of guys, the admin there. And because uh, we almost chat daily on, on Messenger about different things. So Check out what's going on there. Uh, nice to stay up to date on some good things and uh, be a part of a hunting community. Make sure you follow me on Instagram, Facebook, Colorado Hunting Hub. And got questions or comments, email me at clint.a.whitley at gmail.com. You can also find this podcast on Podbean, which is coloradohuntinghub.podbean.com. You can find it on YouTube. You can find it on Apple Podcasts. You can find it wherever you're listening to right now. Spotify, iHeartRadio, Google Play, wherever you want if you don't like the platform you're currently using. I currently do everything on Apple Podcasts. And there, you could leave me a little five-star review. That'd be helpful. And uh, subscribe. If you subscribe, you're going to get these right away and you don't have to... uh, Sometimes I forget about podcasts and, and... certain ones, ones that I don't listen to continuously. So, uh, it's nice to subscribe and they're there. So when I'm out of cell range or something, it was like, Oh man, I ran out of what I normally listen to. I need to listen to this other one, like the XO mountain gear, uh, pack or back country. There's this back country, uh, something or other. So sorry uh, for messing out up, but they've got one. And so I subscribed. So I've got those episodes ready to go when I'm out of cell service and can't download them. So here we go. We've got the Northwest, the Southwest, the Southeast, and the Northeast region with CPW. Should be something for everybody out of these as long as you hunt in Colorado. So enjoy and let me know what you think. Julie, I want to thank you for coming on my show today and chatting with us a little bit about the southeast region of Colorado. 
would you first introduce yourself and let's know who you are and what your job title is, what you do. Okay. Thank you, Clint. My name is Julie Stiver, and I am the newly appointed senior biologist um, for the Southeast region, and that's a senior wildlife biologist. Um, before that, I was uh, a local area biologist in the Colorado Springs area, and I, um, for 12 years, I was um, in biologist for Colorado Springs, and I actually went all the way out to the, the Kansas state line and had um, fairly narrow uh, part of the state, but in February, I was promoted to the senior biologist position. And so now I, I oversee um, everything from the up in Arkansas Valley um, out to the Kansas state line down to Oklahoma and New Mexico. That was what I was just gonna ask you a little bit about the boundaries, but I have been to Colorado Springs, but I know, and uh, used to coach wrestling and, and so I've been to Alamosa area and some of those areas but i don't i don't know the southeast at all uh could you give uh me and, and there are a whole bunch of listeners too that that don't know the area and and uh, sometimes we when i talk to out-of-staters or people from back home in south dakota they always talk about uh denver is like the only place ever in colorado and uh so i give us an, a rundown of some of the the topography and uh, some of those a little bit more detail of the boundaries and, the, and what comprises the region. Yeah, um, so we have an incredibly diverse region. Um, it extends all the way from the collegiate range um, west of Salida with um, places like Mount Princeton, um, just some absolutely beautiful country um, in the Chafee County area. Um, goes down to um, the New Mexico, Colorado line, and we have the Spanish peaks in our region, which are um, just a really, really cool um, couple of peaks that we have down in the Trinidad area. Um, we have Fisher's Peak, um, which is the highest peak um, east of I-25 um, in, in this, the state. And then we go all the way out into the eastern plains of Colorado, um, which is um, primarily a grassland area. And so in this region, we have everything from 14,000 foot peaks um, and alpine, and it's great um, bighorn sheep and mountain goat habitat, all the way out to the eastern plains where we see um, white-tailed deer, prairie chickens, um, good pheasant and quail habitat. Um, and so it's, it's just a really, really diverse um, topography that we see. Um, and, and just some really, really neat country. And with that comes a really diverse um, suite of species that we get to manage in there. And we also have the Arkansas River, which flows through um, the Southeast region. And that, that has some great uh, riparian habitat um, where we see some, some outstanding concentrations of white-tailed deer. And then we have some upland habitats um, where we see uh, mule deer in, in places that, that you wouldn't necessarily expect to see them um, in some of our uplands. So really, really great diversity. Huh. Uh, I need to check out that area at some point. But what uh, what kind of opportunities, and, and obviously you, you just explained the, the uh, range of species and habitats, but what kind of opportunities are there in this region as far as over-the-counter units to maybe more opportunity not 
and I, and I know trophy and it's not really a, a favorite term, but uh, that to the private land that is pretty expansive in that area. Can you give us kind of a rundown of that opportunity? Yeah, well, we have, um, we don't have quite the number of licenses. Um, we don't have the, the high population of deer and elk that you see in the Northwest region or even in the Southwest region. Um, pretty much everything east of I-25 is uh, private land with, with some exceptions. We are trying to add um, public access properties to the Eastern Plains um, that we call it. And there are um, several state wildlife areas that are available. Um, in there. All of our deer licenses are totally limited um, with one exception. We do have over-the-counter white-tailed deer hunting um, that is uh, in several units that are, are west of I-25. And that's um, it's a December season that's primarily for opportunity. Um, we don't have a lot of white-tailed deer in that area, but it, it's the one place in the state where we still have some over-the-counter hunting. Um, in there, and so it's it's been a um, an opportunity for um, for our hunters to go out and, and actually get a chance to to pick up an over the counter license, and we do see some whitetail harvest there. Um, west of I twenty five, we have some good deer units um, where where we we do see some some nice mature mule deer come out of them, but again, not, not the same um, population size that we see over kind of in the Northwest part of the state. We have over-the-counter elk hunting on units that, uh, in several units that have quite a bit of um, lands that are managed by the U.S. Forest Service, so there's public opportunity. Um, and then we have a couple of units that offer some, some pretty quality um, elk hunting that are completely limited units. And so it's kind of a mixture in in the southeast and i i'm curious I, i've been asking how how all uh different cpw representatives recreate but I, i'm a different question for you i'm curious as to uh what species is it that kind of gets you drives you what's what's your favorite species to study research because it always seems like when i chat with other uh, biologists and things, they, there's something that they just really grab onto. Like what's, what's that for you? Yeah. So that, that's a good question. And um, don't tell my colleagues that I'm going to say this because I'm going to say something that might be a little bit of heresy in the, uh, in uh, for Colorado parks and wildlife, but um, my favorite big game species to study is pronghorn. Um, they are a completely unique um, North American species. They're the fastest land animal in North America, um, and they have some really interesting adaptations for, for the speeds that they run. Um, and I, I had the privilege of managing some of the, the largest pronghorn um, herds in the state for several years and, um, and really, really enjoyed doing research on them. So I find them to be really fascinating. Um, one thing that's, that's very interesting about pronghorn is their, uh, the fawn to doe ratios or their pr production rates are really um, highly variable depending on moisture conditions and how much rain and the timing of rain that we have. And so I, I can see huge fluctuations in their population sizes and production rates um, due to the weather. And it, it's even more dramatic than what we see in the other big game species. So um, really, really enjoy pronghorn. I've also spent quite a bit of time researching bighorn sheep and they, um, they are fascinating in the places that they live and how they're able to survive and, and uh, 
and deal with those conditions. So pronghorn probably number one, and then uh, followed by by bighorn sheep. I I. I... I don't know how your colleagues would look differently at you for that, but I, cause I, I, I love pronghorn as well. I think they're, they're just a, a super unique, like you said. And when I'm doing outdoor education with students and kids, I love pulling out that skull and looking at the horn sheets and, and understanding the difference. Well, it's a horned animal, but it's got two prongs. It's uh, uh the only antelope species here and super fast and it's got like no muscle in its lower leg. It's just kind of a, in that lower portion, it's just all these neat little nuances of a, of a really old ancient animal. Uh, just really, really cool critter. So I get you on yeah. that. Yeah. They're, they're a lot of fun and we see some, um, pretty cool movements that they make. Um, and, uh, have seen some that have, have gone 60 or 70 miles um, in, in some of their migrations that we see in, in this area. So yeah, they're, they're a really neat animal. At Midway USA, we know the AR-15 is one of the most popular rifles in modern American history. Known for its modularity and widespread use, it's often considered essential to any gun collection. The essential things you need to run an AR-15 are usually always in stock during shortages, things like magazines and 5.56 ammo. Whether you're looking to buy a new AR-15 or buy parts for your modern sporting rifle, log on and for just about everything for the outdoors, shop MidwayUSA.com. So just recently, there was a public announcement on state public trust lands, and how will that impact the southeast region is there much for public trust lands in that area and i know there's a lot of history around the checkerboarded railroad uh, allocated uh, property and there's a lot of history behind that but looking at cpw's goals of opening what was it a million acres eventually of state trust land what's that look like in the southeast yeah, so the Southeast actually has quite a bit of, of trust land, um, and we are working towards opening um, several of those, those larger tracts of trust land in, in the Southeast region. So that's, that's definitely something that we're working with. Um, we're working with the, the leases and the state land board um, to try to figure out which pieces are going to be best um, for our hunters and then, then also for the other, um, other goals of those uh, the state land board pieces, but but we've been able to open up um, some some pieces that that are going to offer some really exciting opportunities for some of our hunters. And we actually have a uh, one parcel in the southeast region that opened up last year um, that that's going to offer some some really good pronghorn hunting um, as we go into the future. And you know, we're looking at at expanding those public access properties to, to spread out some of the pressure and then and then provide some some great hunting opportunities. So the Southeast region is one place that um, could really benefit um, from that, from opening yeah. up those parcels. And isn't in that region one of the, uh, what's that big piece of property that's just allocated that, that uh, our governor just opened up? Is that... Uh-huh. Yeah, that's the Fisher's Peak. Um, and it, it actually, thought, yeah. yeah, yeah. So Fisher's Peak, um, 
is, is our newest state park. Um, it's 19,000 acres approximately. And um, right now we're in a planning process to look at how, um, how to actually open that and, and what the recreation is going to look, at, look like. Um, with that property, we're also very focused on planning, um, planning recreational opportunities around conservation. Um, for that, we actually have an endangered species on the property. Um, it's the New Mexico meadow jumping mouse. And then we also have things like uh, peregrine falcons that nest there and, and um, some sensitive cultural resources. So we're working um, really hard to, to uh, look at, at the best ways to open that property and, and to, to have it uh, have the use there be responsible, but um, really provide some great access um, for for the citizens of Colorado, and then and then obviously um, all of our visitors. But it's a very very exciting opportunity um, to to work on that property, and that's again where Fisher's Peak is at that um, highest peak that's that's east of I twenty five. That's awesome. Mm -hmm. uh, as as hunters that are trying to be successful we're gonna do our research and we're gonna reach out and ask questions and uh, look at stats, look at look at some different health of the herd related things, uh, doe fawn ratio, that sort of deal. Uh, what's the overall health and outlook of the, of, and I don't wanna say just deer and elk, uh, but give me, give us some of the, the more noteworthy uh, health and outlooks, things that you're seeing with population. If and if one's just kind of stagnant or fine, then maybe skip that one. But if you have an exploding population of whatever species, or uh, really, uh, we we need to bring some attention to this species or whatever. Do, do you know what I mean? Is there, mm -hmm. could you give it give us a little bit on that? Yeah. Well, so first of all, I mean. Uh... We have about 50% of the state's pronghorn are in the southeast region, um, and so we have um, really healthy pronghorn herds, and um, we're able to give out a lot of licenses for pronghorn. Now, most of the pronghorn hunting is on private land in southeastern Colorado, so I recommend that individuals um, who are interested in hunting, uh, hunting pronghorn look at, um, look at places where they could either get access to private land or, or really consider maybe looking at some other areas if, if they're not willing to, to reach out. But um, we're, we're above our long-term population objectives. And um, because of that, with pronghorn, we're able to give out both buck and doe licenses. And a lot of our doe licenses are what we call list B, um, which means that a, a, a hunter could have that, that license plus an additional license. So we have a lot of um, good opportunity for pronghorn in the Southeast region and, and overall the, the herds are doing very well. Um, for our deer and elk, um, the populations are, are pretty steady overall. Um, we have some populations that are, are below our long-term objectives and some that are slightly above, but, but for the most part region-wide, they're, they're pretty steady. Um, some of the major concerns we do have right now um, is that uh, with our elk populations, we're seeing lower cow-calf ratios um, than what we'd like, and uh, that's especially noticeable in the southeast region. So right now, um, we are looking at that and, and trying to, to figure out what, what actually is going on so that, we can, um, so that we can look forward to seeing how we could manage elk for that. 
Um, one thing that was was good about our, our elk herds for the past two years is that our cow-calf ratios have actually been up um, from when they where they were a um, few years ago. And so we have um, we have some some positive things to look at there. So yes. that's yeah, go ahead. And and just a quick question on, on the elk there. I just spoke with Joe from the Southwest region and said a similar thing. Not really sure of the issue. Do you think, just speculating, do you think there's a, a similar issue uh, with with that herd? Yeah, I, I think likely it's, it, we're, we're seeing lower cow-calf ratios in the southern tier of the state. And uh, so that's you know, it's across um, from east to west. And so we actually have uh, uh, several um, places where we're doing research in both the southwest and southeast regions um, to try to tease this out. So we, uh, it's, it's still too early um, to really know what's going on, but we're looking at several factors in there. Yeah. And is there, isn't there, from what I just heard, uh, isn't there some, some more prairie elk down down in that region, in the foothills or so. Uh, yes, we do have. Uh, um, I I've seen um, seen elk almost out to the Kansas state line um, while doing some of, of the surveys out there, and and it it's not something that uh, if you're used to seeing elk up in kind of your traditional Rocky Mountains up in the the black timber, you wouldn't expect to see elk out in those eastern plains. But elk are pretty hardy animals and um, historically they probably spent a lot of time out in the eastern plains. So we do have, um, we see elk um, throughout the eastern plains, now, obviously not at the densities we see them in the mountains, um, but there's typically elk um, along the Arkansas River um, and, and that's east of I-25 and you know in places that, that look more like white-tailed deer habitat, but we see elk in those areas and, and um, and then there's there's a couple of other spots um, that are east of I-25 and in kind of some some plateau country that 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 we see elk. Um, so those are always always kind of neat to see um, because they're usually fairly visible and and like I said, not not a place that you'd expect to see them if if you're just used to seeing them in the black timber up in the Rockies. And the the cool thing about that is that's their historical range. I mean, that's where yep. they they were before we we came this way so and, and it's crazy to think too about grizzly bears being in the in the prairies too and that and the number of bighorns and the number of pronghorn and everything just covering all over in the prairies and just the, the development development that's pushed them into the yeah. hills so that's a that's kind of cool to, to see oh yeah, uh, yeah. I, I interrupted you uh you were going with elk is there any other uh, deer uh, updates on maybe some of the health of the herd there with them or bighorns or mountain goats or whatever? Yeah. Yeah. So when we, in, in the Southeast region, we kind of look at deer that are um, west of I-25 and that's more of our traditional mule deer um, country. And then east of I-25, we have both, um, both mule deer and white tail in there. And we have uh, kind of two stories going on. Um, between those, those two different kind of east of east of I-25 and west of I-25. Um, in, in our mule deer herds, um, we're looking at, at pretty steady population numbers. Um, we have a couple of units that are below our population objectives and um, they really haven't grown much in spite of having uh, low doe harvest in those units. 
Um, and so we're, we're looking at, at ways to kind of, kind of deal with that um, west of I-25. So we look at things like habitat and, and um, predators in, in some areas. So we do have um, some considerations there. Um, but overall, the, the mule deer herds are doing, um, doing pretty well. Again, not the same kind of population numbers that you're going to see in the northwest or southwest um, regions, but we do have some, some good hunting opportunities. Um, one thing that's kind of emerging um, west of I-25 is we do have um, some areas where we have some conflicts with deer in, in urban and exurban areas. And in those areas, um, we do have some opportunities to harvest deer in those areas to try to mitigate those issues. Um, so that's what we have kind of, kind of west of I-25. Um, east of I-25, um, we have some really exciting um, deer herds out there from a, a buck to doe ratio and, and get to see some, some really nice mature mule deer bucks and, and whitetail bucks. But one thing that um, we see out in the Eastern Plains is we have really, really high buck to doe ratios. Um, and we're also seeing really high chronic wasting disease um, numbers in the Eastern Plains. And um, so that's one of, our, one of our biggest concerns right now, east of I-25 is the level of chronic wasting disease we're seeing. Um, we couple that with the high buck to doe ratios. And, and one of the things that, um, one of the management strategies that we have for, for dealing with chronic wasting disease is, try, is to try to reduce buck to doe ratios. Um, and then when you combine the high buck to doe ratios with the, our chronic wasting disease management, um, we were able to increase license numbers this year, made recommendations to increase license numbers um, in the Eastern Plains. And that, that provides some opportunity um, for, for hunters to go out and, and harvest some deer out there. Um, we also have, um, because the, the herds are, even though they have high chronic wasting disease, we have um, opportunity to harvest doe deer as well. A lot of these populations are currently above their population objectives, so we allow some doe harvest out there, and it's one of the few places in the state um, where you can get a, a, a doe deer license, and uh, you know, that's just a great opportunity for youth and, and for people who, um, you know, just want to be able to pick up a license every year um, in there. And so that the um, Eastern Plains is definitely something that, that very much has our attention right now. And, and it's something that, that's an emerging issue um, that, that we're seeing. Um, so we're getting, getting a lot of attention um, with the chronic wasting disease issues and, and also with the buck to doe ratios that we see on those Eastern Plains. Can you break down a little bit about the male-female ratio uh, what's, is there a target or is there a healthy one? Is there a, a number that, that should be attractive to say a hunter versus a biologist, that sort of thing? Yeah, it's, that's, uh, there's a lot that, that goes into the, that question. And in Colorado, um, when we set that male to female ratio, um, we're, we really, one of the things that we do is we, we set that number during a public input process and we go out to, um, to hunters, talk to landowners, and, and look at stakeholders and ask them questions about um, where, where we should manage that. Um, also, you know, as, as biologists, we kind of uh, look at those numbers, and, and right now we don't necessarily have, um, there's not some magic number out there. Um, in, in herds where we're, we're trying to manage for um, 
high numbers of older age class bucks, we're going to have a higher buck to doe ratio than in places where we're managing more for opportunity, where we have um, probably managed for a lower buck to doe ratio. Um, we usually set that, um, that buck to doe ratio, the male to female ratio, um, with an objective range. Um, so you might see an objective range of, of 25 to 30 or 20 to 25 or, or 30 to 40. And um, we, we set that objective range so that we have some flexibility um, for management options, depending on fluctuating conditions and, and for disease management. Um, or for management of, of different, um, uh, under different kind of conditions that we may see um, that, that occur due to drought or, or disease outbreaks and things like that. So it, it's really a public input process, trying to manage the biological capabilities of the herd with, um, with what the, the stakeholders and, and public would like to see for recreational opportunities. And that number is set um, for each herd specifically. And so we look at we look at a, a number of different factors when we set that. Sure. And I've explained North American model of wildlife conservation. I've done a full uh, episode on it because uh, I think that's really important for us as hunters to understand uh, because that's our model and mm -hmm. how each state agency across the nation is is using or what they're using to to work on numbers and determine tags and that sort of thing. But can you enlighten us some on uh, the ever changing or the the daunting task of determining tags a little bit? I know that it's sort of a good transition from what you were just saying, but and I've said it over and over with in previous episodes and chatted with some of the other folks around. We're not here to make hunters happy. You're not here to make hunters happy. You're here for to be there for the animals, the, the, the wildlife, and, and to uh, help manage those. So what, what sorts of things are going into these decisions that always seem to piss some hunter off or <laughs> make some hunter really, really happy and, and whatever else? What, enlighten us a little bit on that so we understand a little bit more. Yeah, it, it, it's, um, it's a pretty... Uh, long process that we do. And we actually consider um, a lot of biology. We consider um, social factors and some political factors when we set license numbers. But um, basically in Colorado, I, I talked about having population objectives. And so we, we set population objectives for herds um, on a kind of on a 10 year basis. And um, that will, will give you some number out there that's our population objective. And then for um, our deer, elk, and pronghorn, um, we, we actually have a very robust uh, kind of inventory strategy that, that we do every year to, to try to collect data um, to inform our management decisions. And so the, the pieces of data that we have that, that go into the decisions, um, I've been talking about those male to female ratios, um, also production, which is the number of fawns that we see per 100 does, um, or calves per hundred cows, and we collect um, we collect those buck to doe ratios and those fawn to doe ratios during inventory flights. 
Um, for deer and elk, um, we do that after the hunting season is done. Um, for pronghorn, that's before the hunting season. And the reason we do it for pronghorn before the hunting season is because um, once the hunting season is complete, the fawns are so big that you can't really distinguish them from the does um, in, in the air. And so we have to do pronghorn um, before the hunting season. But we go in and we collect those data on, uh, like I said, from the air. And, and um, I mean, we, we collect data on, on thousands of animals every year. Just uh, for example, we classified almost 82,000 elk um, statewide in 2019. Um, so that's one piece of data we have. Um, we also have data on survival rates, um, especially for deer. Um, we have five intensive monitoring areas around the state um, where we uh, keep a, a bank of radio collars on both does and fawns. And so we can get their, their annual survival rates um, for the does and then overwinter survival rates for the fawns. Um, we take those data and then we combine it with, with the data on um, on uh, how many animals were harvested by hunters. And we get those data from that, uh, if you know any hunter that's been out there that's gotten one of our surveys um, after their hunt's done, we, we collect those data and, and get data on how many animals we think were harvested in the state. Um, we take all of those and we put it, um, that data into a population model. And that population model uh, gives us an idea of, of where that population is um, relative to our long-term objectives. And then um, once we have those data and, and then we look at other factors like uh, if we're having a lot of game damage in an area um, or conflicts um, that, that are occurring or uh, you know, interest from the public, um, we, we take that and put those population models together and look at where the herd is relative to what our long-term objectives are. Knives, machetes, saws, and shears, multi-tools, shovels, swords, axes, spears, hatchets, and tomahawks. If it cuts, snips, slices, or chops, Midway USA has it. Find great gift ideas in our huge selection of pocket knives and other everyday carry folding knives. Make a statement or create a family legacy with one of our top-of-the-line hunting knives. We've got a great selection of manual and electric sharpeners, too. For just about everything for the outdoors, check out MidwayUSA.com. And then based on that and then combining it with kind of the social things that um, we're hearing from, from hunters on the ground, from landowners um, and, and other folks, we'll take those and uh, we come together as the local wildlife managers in an area come together every year. Um, we talk about where the herds are relative to the, to the objective and then we make license recommendations um, based on all of those factors um, to, either, to move the population towards objective. Um, and that could be reducing doe license numbers or maybe making changes to buck or, um, or um, bull license numbers to try to move those populations towards objective. So we do that at a local area and then we take those recommendations up to a regional level and then a statewide level. And then it ultimately goes to our, our wildlife commission um, to make the final decision. And, you know, when you talked about the North American model, our, our commissioners are the people's representative um, that ultimately make that decision. And so we take those license recommendations forward to them and they're the ones who, who get the ultimate say on, on approving our license numbers. Um, so it's a pretty complex project, um, but we have, um, we have a very, very strong um, inventory system and we spend a lot of time collecting data on, 
on the various species um, around the state um, that helps us inform these decisions. I, I think that's important to, to recognize is that these are not just numbers you guys made up. <laughs> and these are, there's a lot of data that's pretty much probably the majority of what you're doing is, is looking at those models and understanding it, working the health of the herd. So uh, I think that's important to know and, and good to hear. So the the 2020-2025 big game structure came out recently. Uh -huh. uh, is there anything notable in there with the southeast region or uh, big changes, things that you're excited about or not, you know, not yeah, so, excited about? Yeah, so a couple things um, that came out. Um, one of them is that our, um, with that season structure, they, the Third and fourth um, rifle seasons for deer and elk are later um, than they were in previous big game season structures. And um, that's going to provide um, some interesting opportunities um, for some late season um, tags. Um, we do think that, that the third and fourth season are going to be um, some really, really great opportunities for harvesting um, deer and, you know, specifically mule deer um, during those, those later seasons. Um, so one thing that we did do is uh, we're expecting some of the, the harvest rates to go up um, during those third and fourth seasons um, because it's, it's going to be closer to the mule deer rut. And so we made some shifts in our license numbers to try to balance um, that opportunity with the, you know, the, the, uh, potential for in, increased success rate. So that's that's one thing to note um, in there. And, you know, obviously as you get later into the year, you have, uh, you know, chances for, for more snowstorms and things like that. But but I think that there's gonna be some exciting opportunities um, to harvest deer during those seasons. Um, another thing that we had is that we extended the pronghorn season from seven days and it was just one weekend. And now it's gonna be a nine day season, which is going to encompass two weekends. Um, and I think that that's going to be a, a great tool for us to, to get some additional uh, pronghorn harvest in places where we're above the population objective. And, and you know, it's going to give um, it's going to give families out there two weekends to hunt instead of one. Um, I, I personally have um, two young sons that I'm, I'm going to, to teach to hunt here in, in the near future. And, and I'm looking forward to, to being able to take them pronghorn hunting and, and having the two weekends is, is going to be going to be really great um, for that opportunity. Oh yeah. So those are, those are a couple of the, yeah, a couple of the notable things um, that we had from, from the season structure that came out. I, I should be drawing a, uh, in a little tag this year. Uh-huh pretty pretty positive i'm excited about it i haven't really antelope hunted in five years or so so i, I, I drop in my five points for uh a kind of wyoming border unit four or five or whatever it is right up there i'm excited about that i haven't haven't done it in a while and like i yeah. said earlier they they're a intriguing animal and kind of fun to hunt yeah, and I, I personally, I have quite a few preference points for pronghorn and, and uh, decided not to put in last year for one of those, uh, for one of those hunts so that I could wait until we had the nine day season. Um, yeah, to go out and, you know, have that a, was have smart. Extra weekend to do that. So, yeah, that's smart. Yeah. Um, so I know you probably got a lot of research projects in the works, but mm -hmm. I really love the ones that you've collected. It's always cool to hear the some cool findings and things. 
for example, the biologist in this area that she, she was here no longer is, is in their position, but uh, she was studying moose on the Grand Mesa and how we knew they ate willow. So measured how much willow was on, in the landscape and determined that the landscape could hold 100 moose, let's just say. Uh, but then they found out after all that, they eat oak brush. <laughs> and now they're eating oak brush, and we have oak brush all over the place. So how many moose are we going to have? Just yeah. as many as we want. Yeah. So it, it's that kind of study and, and everything. I think that's so interesting. What do you have uh, going that you're kind of seeing some results on or some of those cool, noteworthy research projects? Yeah, so the 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 one that um, that was kind of my uh, my baby for for several years was a, a pronghorn project. It was one of the only pronghorn projects that um, we had in the state. But I, I put GPS radio collars on pronghorn um, in a couple of different units in the southeast region, and uh, one of the things that that was kind of kind of an unknown when I started the project is what kind of highway crossings would pronghorn make? Um, there was kind of this, this thought that pronghorn really didn't cross highways much. Um, and I, I, I thought that they probably did, but we just didn't have any, any research to do that. And so what we were kind of looking at is, is um, putting those collars on and seeing what kind of movements the pronghorn make. And um, I was studying, um, studying a, a population of pronghorn that's that's just um, just east of I-25 here near Colorado Springs that um, has about 10 to 12,000 animals and what we found is that um, about 60% of the pronghorn in that in that group actually don't really make many movements and they they stay in kind of a five mile or so home range um, don't don't have a lot of movements um, but then we had several pronghorn, low percentage um, or about about 40 percent of the population that actually would make movements and um, we had several of them that crossed highways and would cross multiple highways and so that kind of gave us some insight um, we have uh, what we see across the western U.S. when we look at pronghorn populations is that you have some pronghorn populations that that have to migrate um, because the places where they summer get a lot of snow and they, they just can't stay put. And so the entire population of pronghorn will migrate. And then we have other populations that have been looked at where hardly any of them make any types of movements or anything. And so they're, they're almost all um, those populations have individuals that, that basically stay in, in a single area. And then the, the pronghorn that, that we have here just east of Colorado Springs have kind of a, a mixture. Um, so some of them will move and some of them don't. And like I said, I had had one that um, went, and for anyone who's familiar with this area, I had actually several pronghorn that moved from areas that were just north of Pueblo um, all the way up to almost the Castle Rock area. And they had to cross um, three highways to get to those areas. Some of them are, are fairly major highways um, that are that you know have quite a bit of traffic right now. And, and so that was really interesting to see kind of kind of a mixture of animals um, in there. And, and one of the one of the coolest things that I saw um, is that we had some animals that were were trapped out of kind of the same group of pronghorn when uh, when we went out and, and put the collars on. And some of those animals um, that were caught in the same exact group would would um, 
you'd find them all together during the winter. And then uh, once summer hit, you'd have one or two of those animals that would, would move 10, 15, 20 miles. Um, and they would kind of split. And then back in the winter, they would come together and be part of the same group uh, again. And so they, they would kind of split and then would come back together. And, and um, so I've, I've kind of finished up that project. Um, and and um, we'll be kind of, uh, as, as my replacement is hired, they're going to be uh, going to have an, have an opportunity to look at, at some other research that may be of interest to them. But that, that pronghorn project was, uh, was, was a lot of fun for, for the four years that I, I did it. So that's crazy. Did, yeah. Do you think, do you think some of the, those movements or all those movements just have to do with like the historical ancestral, uh, whatever that's in them that they just, before those highways were there, they just, that herd did that. And do you think that gets passed down that, that far? Yeah, I, I think that there's probably um, some of that type of transit, uh, you know, that transmission of, of information from one generation to the next. Um, a, a lot of what I think is going on is that um, generally in the southern part of, of the unit that I was that I was looking at this, it's, it's drier in the southern part and then um, the grass stays greener and we get more, more moisture in the northern part. So I think that the pronghorn were mainly following, um, the pronghorn are actually made the movements, were actually following um, grass green up and, and going, to, going to places that got more moisture. Um, and you can, you can actually see it when you're out there, you know, in an airplane flying. Um, you can see as the, as the grass greens and stays greener up in the northern part of, of the unit. Um, the pronghorn kind of follow that, and so they're 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 looking, I think, mainly at you know the kind of environmental conditions that you see in there, and then um, you know come down to the south, it's it tends to be a little bit warmer, and and um, and they kind of congregated in, in some areas that had some good shrubs and things during during the winter. So that that's, that's what I think was mainly what was going on. That's interesting. Yeah. So I got a. A less uh, educated question. <laughs> uh, so, as a hunter, we see a animal with a radio collar on it. What's your take on harvesting that animal? Uh, what? Uh, now, I always see that debate. Yeah, yeah, and so um, I, I had lots of radio collared animals that have been harvested over the years. Um, I think it's it's entirely up to you to make a decision um, as a hunter about whether you want to do it or not. Um, you know, recognize that that every animal that we radio collar was a significant investment um, that we made. And, you know, we're trying to learn as much as possible um, from those animals. Um, the, the capture costs and the radio collar are really expensive. Um, but, you know, on the other hand, there's there's nothing against it. Um, and I, I don't have any issues when, uh, you, when a hunter brings me one of my radio collared animals, I'm really happy to give them the, the information about, you know, what the history of that animal and, and everything else is. And so it, it would be entirely up to you. Um, me personally, as a, as a hunter, I'd probably select an animal that wasn't radio collared. Um, just because I, I, I know that, uh, that we've, you know, have made, made an investment there, but, you know, it's on the other hand, when you do harvest a radio collared animal, you get some history on, um, typically you'll get some history on what happened with that animal. Now, sometimes we have things like turnover and biologists and it takes us a while to, to track down the data. Um, 
on those. But um, but yeah, it's really really up to the hunter on on what decision and and you know kind of what your what your thoughts are and ethics and everything else. So it's not a not one way or another. Right. Yeah. I found a I found a dead cow moose out shed hunting one uh, few years back, and the biologist gave me all the data on that, and that was that's just cool. It was really yeah. cool to see. Uh, but yeah, I've heard anything from I wouldn't shoot it because that animal's already been bested by it's been already had someone else's hands on it. To um, you would shoot it to the because maybe that was a mortality study and then you just skewed the data because it didn't. So just uh, I, I've heard so many different things and in my book I don't if there was especially with antelope if it was a, a doe antelope and there's one there with and one without because you know the investment i think i'd choose one without uh it, now if that was a giant giant buck that might be another story <laughs> that might be my uh and that was what my tag was for and that was the only one in the herd so yeah i can i can see both sides of that yeah and one thing to consider you know if you do have that giant buck out there that has a radio collar um usually the radio collar um you can usually see a little bit of a uh, indent in the hair and it does break up the hair a little bit so the the hide um on an animal if you wanted to mount your trophy that that'd be something to consider um with having oh, um, with having a radio collar so you know and that's that's i've had hunters who um who've asked me if they could put a, a radio collar that we aren't using anymore on an animal that they harvested that had a radio collar so that they you know they could they could kind of tell the story of that animal they harvested. And I had a, a young man several years ago um, who harvested a pronghorn and, and um, I think it may have been his, his first animal. And, and the, his father asked me if we could, if we could have a radio collar so that, that that could be part of the story of, of the animal. And, you know, in that situation, I was able to to provide a radio collar in that situation that wasn't going to be used again. So, and I, not every biologist would be able to do it. It's going to depend on whether the radio collar is still working and, you know, what we have available. Um, but, but yeah, I mean, that's, that's just something to consider um, if you do harvest that's a radio cool. collared animal. So yeah, entirely up to, up to different folks and what they, what they see. And I just got one last question for you, cause I'm using up a bunch of your time, but uh those folks that are looking at coming to the southeast this fall for an elk or deer or pronghorn hunt, you got any advice for non-residents, people that don't know the area very well, uh, that you've already that you haven't already spoke on? Yeah, I think I think that the best thing to do, um, and you want to do this well ahead of time, um, but once you kind of look at the area that you want to go to, you're going to want to call the local Colorado Parks and Wildlife Office and you want to get a hold of either the the local wildlife officer um, who works in the particular game management units that you're interested in hunting with so either the local wildlife officer or the local biologist and um, those those offices that we have we have one in Lamar one in Salida uh, one in Pueblo and then one in Colorado Springs and so calling those local area offices and then asking for person who manages um, that game management unit, um, they're going to have the best local insight and, and be able to provide you with the best advice um, for those areas. And we we ask, um, really appreciate it if, if hunters can reach out early. Um, right now at this time of the year, we have um, 
our, our wildlife officers uh, maybe dealing with bear issues or, or other issues. And, and if we give we give them a chance to get back to you, um, it's it's usually a much better better option um, to do that. But our, our local area biologists and local area wildlife officers are going to be the best resources um, for you as you as you go hunting. Um, there's also good information on, on the blogs out there. Um, our website has quite a bit of information about, um, about there's some maps there that, that show distribution of species and, and, and plenty, of, um, plenty of good resources to look at. And there's, there's statistics on the website. Um, and our, our local customer service representatives um, are really, really well versed at interpreting those statistics and can help hunters out to try to, try to navigate our, our website and, and to work with those issues. So lots of really nice. good resources available. Yep, I know I got to call call uh, up north here a little ways. I got to ask some pronghorn questions because I'm going into an area I've never been. I got to go up there, I think, in August, check it out. and then. Uh, but I do need to do some calling ahead of time for sure. And yeah. This, yeah. So. And this, those phone calls are important, but getting out on the ground is also, um, also a, a, a good idea. And I, I actually use Google Earth quite a bit um, myself and in looking at areas and um but i'm very a map oriented person and so i can look at those things and and um, try to look at some spots there so lots of good resources but yeah making those phone calls is um is always a good option yeah well i want to let you go i appreciate your your expertise on all this and very soon we're going to have a complete project of all four regions and the statewide look. So this will be a, a good thing for okay. for all the listeners. I think they can hear something about one of the regions or whatever region they, they recreate in. So okay, appreciate well, it. I, yeah, and I appreciate you reaching out and, and putting these um, putting these podcasts together so that we can educate our hunters and and uh, get get our our folks out in the field and and um, see some good harvest and hopefully have some great experiences. Colorado has a lot to offer. Yeah, absolutely. That's why I moved here. (laughs) Right outside of this one church town, there's a gold dirt road to a whole lot of nothing. Got a deed to the land, but it ain't my ground. This is God's country. Spend your Saturdays with life on the water. Join Captain Brandon Simmons for fishing, diving, travel, and so much more. You want to succeed. You want to fish. You want to be one of the greatest. Oh, look at that thing, dude. Wow. Oh. <laughs> Let's see what kind of trouble we can get into today. Don't miss Life on the Water every Saturday night from 7 to 9 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV. <laughs> the destination for outdoor entertainment.